Good morning, everyone. How are y'all doing? Most of you are with me. Okay, we'll, we'll start there. That's okay. Uh, my name is Grace, and if we haven't met, I'm one of the small group pastors here at Real Life. And I just wanted to say, first off, I really, really love you, every single one of you. Second off, we love you here at Real Life. But the biggest one is that God loves you. Our God loved you so much that he died for you. And here at Real Life, we're passionate about reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Uh, we love people the way that God loves people. We want to pursue people the way he pursues people. We want to help grow, people grow toward maturity. And we're so glad that you're here to be a part of that with us. On the chairs around you, you'll see a packet there. Uh, in it, you'll find a Connect card. We ask that every family fills this out every week. And yes, my wife and I fill this out every week, even though I basically live here. And the reason why is we want to connect with you. We want to make sure that you're doing well. On the back is a place for prayer requests. We take very seriously the opportunity to pray with you and for you and lift that up to God because God moves when his people pray. On the front of it, you have some spots for next steps. We never arrive as followers of Jesus. There's always more to learn and more to grow in. And so if your next step is maybe getting in the tank like Ellis was there, you can mark get baptized on there. Maybe it's to join a group or start serving. We would love to follow up with you this week. Uh, also nearby is a giving envelope. And this is a place where you can, if you have check or cash, put your tithe in there. There's some digital options on the screen. But we give because we have a God who we can never outgive. Our God gave first, he gave best, and he gave with so much generosity. Tithing is a way of us saying, we trust you, God. Our finances are yours. We trust you to do what you want with them. So if, that's, if you came prepared today, you can put that in this envelope, and at the end, we'll put it in the boxes in the back. Uh, but let me pray. God, thank you so much for all that you've done for us and in us and through us. I just love that gospel message of your love, and I love how Paul says it, it's actually Jesus' love that compels us. We're compelled by it. We can't sit still because of the story of love of our God who came down and died for us. Lord, I pray that you would fill our heart with joy today and love and a curiosity, a steadfast desire to be close to you. Please open our eyes so we can see what you have. Open our ears so we can hear. We love you with all our hearts, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Well, today we're going to continue our series through the book of James. We're getting close to the end, and I don't know about you, uh, the last few weeks I felt like James is just trying to beat me up a little bit, right? Anyone with me? Or am I the only one? Okay, good. A few of us. James is, he's very good at getting right to the heart of the matter and using words like, it will eat your flesh like fire and your tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison, right? He's, he's very good at word pictures that cut right to the heart. This week, he's going to change tone just a little bit. And what he wants to do is come alongside of us and help us navigate the challenges that come with following Jesus and following him well. I want to tell you a story to start off with. As you're turning your Bible to James chapter 5, uh, I want to tell you a story about a guy named Horatio Spafford. There will be a picture of him up on the screen. Horatio Spafford. First off, fantastic name. If you're going to have kids, Horatio is a great name. Only in Britain will you come up with a name like that, right? This guy emigrated to the United States in the 19th century and ended up moving to the city of Chicago, him and his wife and their four daughters. And he was a property owner. He owned a lot of different apartments and places in Chicago. And they loved Jesus so much. 
he absolutely loved being with his family, loved sharing the good news of Jesus, loved helping his family grow. Well, if you know your history, Chicago was a rough place to live in the 19th century because something called the Great Chicago Fire came through it and devastated the entire city. Probably one of the worst city fires that's ever happened. And everything that Horatio owned was wiped out in one single event. All of his wealth, everything he had. Here's this guy who loves Jesus so much, he wants to follow him, and he's doing it with all his heart, and yet he's just lost everything. What do you do with that? Well, Horatio and his family, they got together, and they talked it over, and they prayed through it, and they really felt God's leadership, that they were to go back to England, that this whole America thing wasn't working out, and they needed a new, a new plan. So what he did was he sent his wife and his four daughters on a ship across the Atlantic to England, and he stayed back in the States to kind of wrap things up. Well, as the ship went across the ocean toward England, a storm hit, and the ship sank, and all four of his beautiful little girls drowned in the ocean. His wife was the only one who survived. What do we do with that? How do we wrestle through that tension of being a follower of Jesus, but things don't go perfectly? If you're like me, most of us have this idea in our mind, whether we actually believe it or not, it's this idea in the back of our mind that, okay, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, God, and yet things are not working out the way that they're supposed to work out. Everything around me is chaos, and here I am following you with all my heart. Jesus himself says, look, in this world, you're going to have trouble, and you're going to have trouble on account of me. I'm the one who's going to cause that because people are not going to like me. They're going to hate you because they hate me. There's actually going to be division around you because you follow me. And here I had this nice little narrative in my head that everything would be great, right? Well, so much for that. My hopes are dashed. What, how do we endure through pain and trauma like that as followers of Jesus? James wants to help us with that. And one of the things he wants to do is help us fix our eyes on what is most important. So if you're taking notes today, the bottom line today that he wants us to understand is that, first off, here's awesome news. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming. One, one of you is excited about that. Jesus is coming. Are we excited? Because when Jesus comes, he's going to eliminate all sin, suffering, and death. Okay? I think that's something worth being excited about. And James recognizes that. Jesus is coming, and his invitation is, will you be ready? Jesus is coming, will you be ready? Let's, let's read from James chapter 5. We'll start in verse 7. He says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm. Because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Uh, notice, we're going to keep reading here, but notice there three, three, three times he basically says Jesus is coming. Number one, be patient until the Lord's coming. Number two, the Lord's coming is near. And number three, the judge is standing at the door. Three times he wants us to understand this. Jesus is coming. And when he comes, it's going to be awesome. But here's the thing, James and everyone to whom he wrote his letter has been dead for, over, for about 2,000 years now, okay? Jesus is coming soon, plus 2,000 years or so. Here's the thing, God's timeline is not like ours. For me, soon it'd be like yesterday, right? That would have been nice. 
Jesus is on a timeline, and James says, live every moment like he's coming tomorrow, like he's coming today. Soon is when he's going to be here. Well, James continues. He says this, Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And maybe you haven't heard of Job's perseverance. We're going to talk about it soon, but he wants to show us some examples of people who did endure through suffering. He talks about the prophets, and I'll just introduce you to three of those guys. One of them was a guy named Isaiah. He wrote this incredible book all about how God's people are going to go into captivity, but eventually God's going to save them out of it. And there's going to come a Messiah, Jesus, we know him to be, who's going to save everything. What an amazing message and an amazing man of God. He was sawed in half by Manasseh, the king of Judah, at the end of his life. Another guy, Jeremiah, wrote an amazing book, preached his guts out all of his life, this message that, look, turn back to God. God wants you to turn back to him. Nobody listened to him. They didn't like his message. And toward the end of his life, they dragged him off to Egypt, said, no, we're running away. And they stoned him to death in Egypt. The people of Israel did. Another guy, Zechariah, he was killed in the temple. There's just so many stories of these prophets who did amazing work, who were utterly faithful to God through and through, but they had just really painful, difficult lives. He says, look at those guys, because they didn't quit. They endured. Like I said, we'll talk about Job, so we'll get back to him. But one last verse that I want, I want to uh, look at today, verse 12. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Uh, I don't know about you, that seems like it's a little out of left field here. <laughs> like, we were going down this great track and then keep your promises, right? I promise it's relevant and we'll talk about it. But what he's really inviting us to do is to be Jesus' kingdom, to live as if his kingdom is here and it's now and we get to be citizens of it. And he's going to give us some really practical things to latch onto in this passage that are going to help us navigate the fact that Jesus is coming and be ready when he comes. So the first thing he wants us to know is that we need to wait, and we need to wait actively. I don't know about you, that doesn't sound like those two words are supposed to go together. Wait actively. To me, waiting means I'm going to sit on my couch and watch a movie and, and wait, right? I, I'm not doing anything productive. But James gives the example of a farmer. Uh, any of you farmers in the room? Any of you know any farmers? Have some of you heard what a farmer is, right? Okay. I want to make sure we're all on the same page before I move forward, right? A farmer, right? Crops, fields, it's great. You should try it. Um, I was at Real Life at the Palouse down in Pullman before I came here, and there were lots of farmers in the church. And uh, here's one thing I know about farmers. If you're looking for someone who works hard, look at a farmer. They're up as soon as the sunlight's up enough that they can see, and they're done when the sun goes down. They're constantly working. But there's some things that are totally out of their control. One of them is time. <laughs> when are the crops actually going to be done? They have no control over that. Another one is the weather. Will there be rain or won't there be rain? Will I have to irrigate all summer long or not? There are these things that are out of their control. But that doesn't mean that they're just sitting back, watching Netflix, and waiting for the crops to grow. Because they're going to be very, very sad when the season is over. 
Instead, what are they doing? They're out there, they're plowing their fields as soon as they know it's the right time. They're planting seeds, they're watering it, they're trying to keep pests away from it, and they're weeding their fields. They're doing all of these things so that when the time is right, the crop will be ready. James says that's how we should wait. Now, what does that look like for us, though? For us, Jesus left, and he left us with a mission, or a great commission, you might have heard it called. He says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. You do that by baptizing them in my name and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Jesus said, I'm not going and you're not just going to hunker down and do your jobs and raise your families and hope that eventually I'm going to come back. He says, that's not what I'm about at all. Instead, I've given you a mission to do right where you're at in your jobs, in your neighborhoods, in your families. It's my mission, number one, to share the good news about me with everyone you possibly can. Because without me, they're going to live eternally separated from me. And we don't want that. Share the good news. The other side of the coin is now once people have chosen to follow me, help raise them toward maturity. Help them grow as my followers. We call these things discipleship. Helping someone know Jesus and then learn to follow him, be on mission with him, and be changed by him. He's given us this mission. And when Jesus returns, he wants to see what we're doing when he gets here. Are we faithful? Are we ready? Are we being part of this mission? Or we're just kind of doing our own thing and, and figuring it out. James says, no, no, be like that farmer. Wait, but wait actively. Don't give in to the temptation to withdraw and retreat. Now, the second thing that James wants us to see today is he wants us to endure. And he says endure like Job. Okay, I told you we'd get to him. Uh, Job is a lot of fun. Some of you probably know his story. Some of you don't. So I'm going to tell the story real quick. Uh, because Job had a bummer of a life. Not always, but at least the part that this big book is about. Uh, so Job was a righteous man. He did what God asked of him. He was very faithful and obedient to him. Loved him, cared about other people. He would pray and put, give sacrifices on behalf of his own kids. He had 10 of them, by the way, seven sons, three daughters. That's a, that's a mob at that point, I think, right? And he had so many flocks and herds, he was the wealthiest man around because God had blessed him. That's not how God always works when we're faithful to him, um, but that was how he worked in Job's life. Well, Satan comes and presents himself before God in heaven, and God says, hey, what have you been up to? He's like, I've been wandering around the earth, just checking things out. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? Look at this guy. He's awesome. He's following me. He's faithful to me. Have you, have you looked at him? Satan says, yeah, I have. Um, the only reason he's following you is because you put a hedge of protection around him. Some of you might have prayed for a hedge of protection before. Um, I would maybe recommend being cautious about that one because God's about to tear that hedge of protection down, right? You put a hedge of protection around him. If you allowed me to take things from him, you'd see his true colors. At that point, he would not be following you. He will disown you, I promise. And God says, go for it. The hedge is gone. Just don't harm Job. So what happens? His sons and daughters are feasting in a house, and the roof collapses, and they all die, every single one of them. Raiding bands can't come through, and they take all of his flocks and herds and kill all of his servants. At the end of this scene, Job is left with his wife, and that's it. And he's sitting in the dust. He's torn his clothes, which is a Jewish sign of mourning. He's torn his clothes. He's sitting in the dust. And he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. 
he refused to curse God. Instead, he said, hey, this is God's prerogative. He gave it to me. It's in his hands to take it away. Talk about a faithful guy, right? Well, that's not it, because Satan comes back. God says, what have you been doing? He's like, oh, same thing, just wandering around, checking things out. And God says, hey, and I wish God wouldn't say this, if I'm honest. He's like, hey, have you considered my servant Job? I'm like, look what happened last time. Why would you do this? Have you considered my servant Job? Even though you incited me against him to destroy him, he's still faithful. And Satan says, skin for skin. You wouldn't let me touch him before. He'll change. He'll change. Promise, I promise you, he'll change when you allow me to afflict his body. And God said, go and do it, but you can't kill him. So Satan goes out and, inf- and afflicts him with boils. He, we find him sitting in ashes with jagged pieces of pottery scraping his skin because he itches and is in so much pain. Talk about a low point, right? And his wife's there and she says, curse God and die. Just give up, man. <laughs> this is not working for you. Give up, curse him and die. And he says, don't talk like a foolish person. It's up to God whether he gives or takes. Now, I don't know about you. I look at Job, and I'm like, this is a larger-than-life example of faith. I wish I was like that. I wish I could do that. But that's only the first two chapters of Job. Most of the rest of it is just arguments. If you like debate, you're going to love Job, right? If you like philosophy. Because what's going to happen is he has these friends who come that really aren't friends. They come and sit with him, and then they start arguing with him about, here's what you did wrong that caused this to happen. But Job says things like, I wish that God would come down right in front of me here, stand before me so that I could accuse him, and I could ask him, why did you do this to me? That's the kind of things Job's saying. Job is distressed and in a lot of pain, and you see these highs and lows. Uh, One of my favorite highs, he says, God, though you slay me, yet will I trust in you. He's just an emotional mess, right? Maybe some of you have experienced this too, where he trusts God but he's having a hard time. And what's, what's really cool about this story is not the friends, they're a mess, right? But he gets to the end and finally the friends haven't been able to persuade him that he's actually an awful guy and that's why all this has happened. And God comes down and meets him. And he comes and meets him in a storm, which that's not how I want God to meet me, right? And he says this, brace yourself like a man. That's also not how I want God to meet me. Brace yourself like a man. We're going to have a conversation here. And he starts asking Job questions. So where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Where were you when I decided the weather patterns and how they'd work? Yeah, explain to me why the ostrich looks so ridiculous or the mating habits of the wild donkeys. There's some really weird questions in there, right? Like, Job, can you tell me these things? And obviously the answer is no, he cannot, nor was he there. And what I love is for Job, look, God's not mad at Job because of what he said. Even though he said some things that I would probably shudder to think about saying to God, God wasn't mad with him because at the end of it, Job says, oh man, I have nothing to say to you. I have nothing. I've got nothing. I had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. So I repent in dust and ashes. And guess what? God never tells him what happened. You and I know. We know about this like divine showdown in heaven. But Job never finds out why what happened to him happened. But Job stops caring as soon as God shows up, which is really interesting. He couldn't care less anymore. He doesn't ask him because Job just had an encounter with the living God. He doesn't need to know the answers to all these questions anymore. So when James is telling us endure like Job, what he's saying is, 
Yes, don't give up your faith, but it's okay to tell God that you're hurting. It's okay to ask him the hard questions. Why? Why is this happening? What, what gives? I don't, I don't understand. It's okay. You see example after example of faithful people in the Bible doing just that. Why is this happening? And what happens every time in Scripture, and I can say every time in my life, is God shows up. The temptation is for me to run, run away, to give up like his wife said, curse God and die and just be done with it all, or to withdraw from the people who love me, the community that I need. That's the temptation, but Job wouldn't do it. Instead, he entrusted himself to God and had a really hard conversation with God and walked away completely transformed. That's what James is inviting us to do. Now, I want to give a picture of this. Uh, in California, there will be a picture up on the screen here in a moment, is, the Elsinore, is Lake Elsinore, and in it, it's just this barren desert land with lots of, lots of high desert things like sagebrushes. And you look at it, and you're like, there's nothing really exciting about it except maybe the lake itself, right? This is not some place that I want to just move to and live at all the time. Lake Elsinore. But here's the thing. Every 10 years or so, they have what is called a super bloom. Super bloom. And you can look this up. We're going to show a picture in a minute, not right now. But a super bloom happens where all of a sudden, out of nowhere, flowers start to sprout up in the middle of the desert. It's the craziest thing. It, they don't belong there. It doesn't look like they should be there, but they are there. And it's like every 10 years. And they've done a lot of study about what leads to this. And there's a very specific set of conditions that has to happen. First, it can't rain enough that grasses start to grow. Because if grasses grow, they take over. And they cut, they, they're going to cut out the flowers because the flowers are weaker. But it has to ra- rain enough in the autumn that it penetrates deep to where the seeds for the flower are in the soil and activates them and gets them ready. So a lot of rain in one moment, but not enough rain to sustain grass growth. Okay, We're getting pretty specific here. Then it has to warm up, the earth does, through the spring months. And as it's warming up, there has to be just enough cloud cover during the day so that the seedlings that are poking up don't get scorched. And at night, cloud cover so that it creates this buffer zone where it's still warm and they don't freeze. Then there actually has to be little enough wind that it doesn't uproot the flower seedlings. So by this time, the likelihood of this happening is really low. Uh, 10% really, right? Once a decade. Very low that this is going to happen. But this is what it looks like when it does happen. Those are those same mountains, right? It looks like a plane full of paint just exploded over top of it, right? It's incredibly stunning. Very rarely this will happen. And here's the thing. The potential for that always existed in the soil. It's always there. But when people look at that, they say, no, no, there's no way that this can happen because the conditions aren't right. The desert is too hostile. And the reality is this, that is what Jesus wants our lives to look like. When we go through hard, painful desert seasons of our lives, what he wants us to do is to trust that he's working out the exact perfect conditions to bring beauty and full bloom when the time is right. That's what this looks like. That's what Job wants to teach us, because at the end of Job's life, God restored everything, even more than he had originally. 
but we have to trust the desert season. We have to learn to endure like Job. Uh, a discipline that I, des- I developed that kind of goes along with this when I was in high school uh, was, well, first off, I'm not a very emotional guy. I'm very intellectually driven. Things hit my head before they hit my heart. But I have my moments, okay? I have my moments where I just am overwhelmed by things. And as an angsty teenager, my parents rubbed me raw. Not because they were wrong. This is because I was wrong, but I think, thought I knew everything, right? If you're a teenager in the room, you're right with me, I'm sure. But I remember a time where I was so angry at my parents. I don't even remember what it was about. I was so angry with them. I went into my room, probably slammed my door shut, right? And I laid on my bed, and I'm like, God, my parents are terrible. Why would you give me these parents? And I'm just so angry and frustrated about this. And I just felt this nudge from God, go and start reading the Psalms, And the reason why that makes sense is the Psalms is written by a bunch of people that are emotionally compromised. They're really angry. They're really sad. They're really frustrated. They're really upset. They're really happy. There's a lot of those, right? They just love God. They almost can't stand God. It's like this roller coaster of things. There's something for everyone, right? Something for the whole family. So I started reading the Psalms, and I got to Psalm 4. And here I'm laying on my bed, heart full of anger, and it says this, in your anger do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. And a lot of people think this psalm, what was happening was there was a famine that was going through the land and King David was getting a lot of flack from the people like, hey, what's going on with this? You got to make this better. And at the end of it, he says an amazing thing. You filled my heart, God, you filled my heart with a greater joy than when their grain and their new wine abound greater joy right now in the middle of the trial than when they had everything they wanted and things were good because he trusted that process. So endure like Job and you too can be a super bloom. Uh, The third third thing that James wants us to understand is if I want to be found ready when Jesus comes, I need to be willing to fight for unity. Not just be okay with unity, but actually fight actively for it. And he uses a couple of things, but first I want to I talk about why unity is so important. And the reason why is because it's what Jesus prayed specifically for us for. Did you know that Jesus prayed for you? That's pretty cool. On the, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus prayed for you and me. First he prayed for himself, then he prayed for his disciples, and then he prayed for us. This is what it says from John 17. My prayer is not for them, my 12 disciples, alone, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that's us, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. That should be pretty staggering if you think about that for longer than five seconds. The unity that God wants me to have with each one of you in this room is the same kind of unity that God the Father has with God the Son. Isn't that crazy? And I don't even know what that looks like, (laughs) if I'm honest. But here's the thing. If Jesus prayed for it, do you think it can happen? Jesus is not wasting any breath here. He believes that we can have that kind of unity. He, He goes on. He says, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Do you see the results of our unity? The world's going to know that God sent Jesus to the world. 
And they're also going to know that God loves them. How? Not because we know all the right stuff. We're intellectually superior. Not because we have the right, we have the best theology or we, we can argue our points best, but because we're unified. People are going to look at us and say, these people are nuts because everyone else hates each other in this world. But these Christians, man, they sure are together. That's what Jesus prayed for with almost his dying breath. How's that for cool? No wonder James cares about this so much. And, and if you've been with us through this study through James, you'll recognize that pretty much every chapter, he's been telling the same thing. Learn to get along. Learn to be unified. In this one, he says a couple things. The first one is this. Verse 9 of chapter 5, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. What does he mean when he says don't grumble about each other? I think of grumble and I think of, right, like just under, under my breath. The practical way we see grumbling happen is something called gossip. Okay, familiar with gossip maybe a little bit? It happens everywhere. All you have to do is listen for, for a couple minutes and you'll probably hear something. Even in the church, it happens a lot. Gossip is whenever I'm talking negatively about someone who's not present. I'm just having a side conversation with someone and tearing someone else down with my words. And it feels good to do this, as, sad as sin often feels good to do, right? Or we wouldn't, we wouldn't do it. The reason why is what I'm doing is I'm gaining a crowd of people that's on my side. They're with me, and together we're happy with just villainizing that other person and tearing them down. That's what gossip is intended to do. That's why Jesus talks about it. That's why the New Testament talks about it. That's why it's so important is because it's going to create divisions and chaos among the body. James is saying, don't grumble against each other. And Jesus can tell us, go to that person. Actually confront the person and talk to the person. But don't have side conversations about people. It's evil. It's sinful. It's going to ruin what Jesus died to bring. Uh, the other thing that James says in here, and this is that last comment in verse 12, above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you'll be condemned. It matters that I keep my word. Did I say I'm going to go to coffee with someone? I'm going to go to coffee with them, right? Did I say I'm going to show up and help them with something? I'm going to do it. I'm not going to waffle. I'm not going to pull out and say, no, no, sorry, I just got busy. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. Don't swear. And he's not talking about profanity. He's talking about making a strong oath commitment about something. He's like, don't do that. Because what that means is that all those other times that you don't do that, unpredictable whether you'll actually show up. Just do what you say you're going to do and don't do what you say you're not going to do. Do it that way. And Jesus is going to get after the religious leaders in the Gospels for this. Uh, they would go and they would make a promise, and they'd say, I swear on the temple of God that I will do this. And then they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't show up, and someone would say, why, why didn't you do this? You swore to me. And like, oh, I just swore on the temple. I didn't swear on the gold of the temple, okay? If I swore on the gold of the temple, then you would know it's serious, but I didn't. They're finding these loopholes and things, and, and we think that sounds ridiculous, but how about this one? Cross my heart, Okay? What comes next? Cross my heart. Hope to die. Oh, I didn't say hope to die, so I don't have to. All these things that the kids do, right? It didn't say stick a needle in my eye. It gets ridiculous, right? That's the whole point. It gets ridiculous because we're looking for a way out to not have to do what we committed to doing. 
James says, no, that's not who we are. That's not how the kingdom of God functions. Jesus is inviting us to be faithful and have the integrity to do what we said we'll do. Why? For the sake of relationship. Those brothers and sisters for whom Jesus died for unity, that's not going to be possible if we're not people of our word. So when Jesus comes back, he wants to find us unified and doing what he's asked us to do. Does that make sense? Right? Don't grumble. Keep your word. It's all about this unity. Fight for it. Don't just say unity is a great idea. Fight for it. And I think about how crazy this world is, and I think about how badly it needs a picture of true unity. That's what you and I are here for. That's why Jesus called us from darkness into light, was to show other people that they too can experience that. So James has so many practical things for us to know and understand today. He wants us to be ready when Jesus comes. The Bible talks a lot about Jesus' second coming. Jesus himself does. If you're someone who wants to study this more, I'm going to give you a few scriptures just to look at it. Uh, Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus is going to talk about his coming and what it looks like to be ready. Uh, the book of First Thessalonians and then Revelation, especially chapters 2 and 3, all of those are going to show this is what it looks like to be ready when Jesus comes. The long and short of most of them are, is going to be, are you doing the work that Jesus left us to do? Are you getting along with each other? Are you passionate and urgent about the job that he's given you to do or not? Because Jesus is so excited for the potential of what all of us can do in this world. In Spokane, in our neighborhoods, in our families, he wants to make an impact. And he wants to do it through you and me. But that really can't happen unless we we understand that Jesus is coming again and that there's this mission he's given us. Now, if you're like me, it's easy to talk about the goodness of God when things are good. When everything's going great, when I get the raise, right? When, when my wife and I are super close and the kids are doing great and it's great talking about God's goodness then. But if I don't keep my perspective on eternity that Jesus is coming again and he's gonna make all things new, he's gonna restore everything, what can happen is when the bad times come, I can be defeated by them. Over the past few years, this has been a rough few years for, well, basically everyone. Things have been difficult. And I've seen a couple categories of people who follow Jesus. One is the people who seem to be doing well and then were not doing well at all. Then is the other group that, oh, they seemed okay. And then through this, they actually got stronger. They came out on the other side with more passion, more conviction, and they showed a totally different story about who Jesus was. That first group of people showed that their God was not worth following. He was not worth giving their lives to, that he wasn't really trustworthy. The second group of people said, our God is trustworthy even in the storm, even when we don't have anything, even when it's difficult. That's the kind of person that God has called you and me to be. It's the kind that tells that good story. So that begs the question, how did Horatio Spafford do? Remember that guy? Talked about him a little while ago. How did he do with all of this? He's just lost everything he owns. He's lost his daughters. Well, Horatio got onto a boat and headed off for England. And as he set off across the Atlantic, he passed the place where the Villa de Havre, the, the boat that his daughters had died on, had sunk. And as he did, he wrote a song, a really, really powerful song. And what it showed was that he got it. 
even in the midst of the most painful time in his life, he understood. And this is a song that many of you probably know and probably have heard before. And my friend Matthew is going to help us. He's going to play and he's going to sing some of this song. And what I would invite you to do is just to close your eyes or there will be lyrics on the screen. They'll be slightly different from what he sings because I tried to make them more modern, the language. But you can read along or close your eyes and just allow the words to wash over you and reflect on how good our God is even in the middle of that storm. When peace like a river ascended my way, when sorrows like sea billows Oh, praise the Lord, oh, 
super balloon. I told myself I wasn't a crime 0 for 2 so far, so uh, this, is, this is the kind of God that we serve, the kind who shows up in our moment of need, who meets us, who gives us the strength to not only endure, but to thrive when everyone else is crumbling. James just wants us to understand Jesus is coming, and he's going to make everything right. Let's be ready when he gets here. Jesus, you are so good all that you have done, all that you are. We are so grateful to be here, to be able to praise you, to be able to worship you. Lord, as the psalmist says, your love is better than life. Because of that, we glorify you, we worship you. Lord, help us to be people who care so deeply about your name and your honor that, that when we go out, we tell people a story of hope and joy that we show who you are. We put you on display everywhere we go because, God, you are worth following with all of our hearts. Lord, help us to be people who show and tell others the good news about you and then invite them into relationship with you. God, thank you for calling us into this relationship in the first place. We love you with everything we've got, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we love you a ton, real life, and we're so thankful you are here. You can take those giving envelopes, those connect cards. You can put them in the black boxes on the side. If you need prayer today, if God's speaking to you, we'll have our staff and leadership team up here ready to pray for you. So please don't pass the moment by. We love you. We'll see you next week.